Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and this is a podcast all about media and journalism and the world around us. There was no podcast last week and the reason for that was that I was caught in the middle of the ASAP Rocky trial. I was caught in the middle of presenting an extreme triathlon from Norway and I was also caught in the middle of uh, what ended up happening over the weekend at a mosque attack in Bairum in Norway. So it's been an extremely busy week. I did have a couple of interviews lined up that just didn't come off and that they had to be postponed and to be honest I didn't we just didn't have the time to chase them as the week wore on uh, it was an hour it was a, a week of very very little sleep indeed but those stories apart from asap rocky is going to be getting his judgment tomorrow uh, as i'm speaking to you or as i'm recording this uh, so those stories will all be coming to an end it's been a very very busy summer after being to the fifa women's world cup and covering all of those stories my guest on this episode of Our Man in Stockholm is Zainab Boladale. Zainab was born in Nigeria and came to Ireland at the age of four and uh, has recently been working, or up to recently, has been working presenting a children's news show on RTE. So I wanted to find out from her what it's like being a woman of colour, uh, growing up in Ireland, uh, deciding that she wanted to get into journalism, going through her education, and then finally uh, ending up in the, so the palace of Irish journalism, which is RTE. Uh, can you tell me when you first... Uh, realized that you wanted to get into journalism that this is what you wanted to do with your life when did that thought occur to you first um i think it's always been there so when i was younger and um, the earliest memory that i don't even have but it comes from my mom um she remembers me picking up newspapers and like pretending i could read what was on on them I was looking at the pictures and just making up some ramble. Um, so I suppose that's the earliest inkling of me wanting to become a journalist. But um, I remember when I was much younger, I always knew I wanted to write and talk to people, but I never thought about it in terms of journalism because you know, obviously when you're young, you don't really have an idea as such. But um, I started to realize that it was specifically journalism I wanted to do, maybe towards secondary school. Um, I always knew I wanted to write. I always knew I loved talking to people. I always knew I loved like just creatively using language to engage people in stories. Um, so it was truly in secondary school that I started to like recognize that it was journalism. And who were your heroes? You know, when you turned on the radio or the TV, did you look uh, at somebody or listen to somebody and go, OK, I want to be like that person? Or was it just, you know, sort of uh, consume everything you could in terms of media? To be honest, I didn't have any heroes um, growing up within journalism. I just had people I really liked. Um, and even at that, they weren't re really within the journalistic space. I looked up to a lot of women who kind of like, I thought, oh my God, they're so empowering. Oh my God, I love, you know, the way, their ability, the way they had the ability to come across um, so strong, but yet, um, like sensitive at the same time and the way they were super persistent I look up to persistent women who um, regardless of you know what society says about them they just continue to strive and achieve their goals so while I didn't have any um, anybody that I considered a hero within journalism I had a lot of people to look up to out there in the I suppose just in public's eye. 
And you grew up in County Clare on the west coast of Ireland. So in terms of the people that you did look up to, the people that, was this sort of, you know, people on the BBC or was it people on RTE or was it, you know, writers of books that you read as a kid or that kind of thing? Was, it, was there an international dimension to it? Uh, you were born, of course, in Nigeria as well. Was there Nigerian people you looked up to or how did it sort of, how, what did the map look like for you in terms of those people? I, I remember the first person who I really looked up to was a writer called Mallory Blackman. Um, she writes these book series called Knots and Crosses and um, like just like amazing books, which I read growing up when I was younger. And um, for me, I really liked her stuff because I was like, oh, my God, she's such a poignant writer. And I used to write stories at that time. And um, and she's a black woman who lives in the UK. And, you know, she spent all her life writing and uh, she still writes to this day books for adults, young children, teenagers. And for me, I was like, oh, my God, she's super cool. And also Chimamanda Ngozi. Um, she's a Nigerian writer. And now um, she goes around speaking about her literature. Um, for me, I was like, oh, my God, there's a Nigerian woman who's doing something she loves. And she's, you know, making she has international success. Um, but to be honest, there wasn't a lot um, at home in Ireland. There wasn't a lot for me in Nigeria um, because also I didn't really see anyone that looked like me as much within journalism and when I did look for that um, for that kind of like person who I could look up to it was mainly American journalists but again American style of journalism is nothing like you know uh, journalism in Ireland so it was like you could only loosely um, try to replicate what they were doing or their journey or try to see how their stories could fit into yours. Did that scare you in a way? Because, you know, ideally somebody will have paved the way for people, you know, from from your community, from the place where you're from, you know, that they'll have done it and you could look up to them and you could say, OK, well, if they can do it, I can do it. But you didn't have somebody like that. So did you ever sort of think to yourself, well, you know, I, I remember my father saying to me years ago that, you know, people like us don't do jobs like that. And that mm. stuck with me for many years and it took me a long time to get into journalism because of that. Did you ever have that feeling or did that make you sort of, you know, uh, sort of doubly determined to get involved in journalism? To be honest, I remember something that was said to me when I was much younger by people who just didn't really see um, the potential in me. Um, I remember when I started to talk about the fact that I wanted to do journalism, I wanted to tell stories, you know, whether it be, you know, features, factual, whatever that was. I remember um, someone <laughs> said to me, um, you know, why don't you do journalism at the side? Like, you know, like, how are you going to be successful in life if you do something like that? Like, it's not a job for people like us. And what they meant is, you know, children of immigrants or, you know, um, just black people in Ireland. I suppose what it is, is um, for them, they felt, you know, many children of immigrants come to this country and to get the best education and the best opportunity. And for many children, they feel the need to study something that guarantees them a job. Um, and completely understandable. Um, and sometimes that's pressure from parents. And I remember even when I started to think about putting journalism down in the CAO form, um, my mom was a bit doubtful because she felt like, oh, my God, that's such an uncertain career path. Because um, for children of Nigerians, she, she like, got that right. It's an uncertain career path for everybody, really. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. for, for many Nigerian children, like there's only five choices. It's like doctor, nurse, engineer, like, you know, lawyer or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like those jobs that, you know, you have to work hard and they all guarantee money. <laughs> but like for her, journalism was like because mm, a journalist in Nigeria is just like 
pretty much a journalist here. The only difference is you're probably more likely to make money here, whereas in Nigeria, you might not make that much money, but it's like a labor of love type of thing. Yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly like that. I mean, one of the things that bothers me about the profession, such as it is, is this thing of like, you know, you have to do an internship. So even if you go to DCU the way you did and you do your degree over the three years, you have to be prepared to work for nothing for a year or two. And, you know, people like working class people can't afford that. People come who may mm-hmm. have spent time in direct provision, they can't afford to do that. You need Absolutely. to start doing, you need to start getting paid for your work straight away, you know. So mm-hmm. it sort of rules it out then. And then the unfortunate thing is that, you know, that that means that people just don't get heard. So people People from yeah. County Clare, people from Tala, people from uh, Northwest Donegal end up just going, well, that's again, it's, it's not for people like me. But when you did yeah. get up to, to DCU, because DCU was one of the, you know, the, the blue ribboned journalism degrees in the country. It's one of the best respected ones mm-hmm. there. What was that experience like for you? Because, you know, you left sort of, you know, not necessarily rural Ireland. You know, you weren't sort of, you know, this is not uh, the quiet man you were leaving here. But at the same time, <laughs> it must have been a big change for you to come to Dublin, was it? So I came to Dublin at 17, and whenever I tell people that, they're like, but you were so young. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so kind of like when I came to Dublin at 17, I I hadn't been to Dublin that much, so I barely knew like anything about Dublin. And I know that sounds a bit far-fetched, but my mom really didn't like coming up to Dublin simply because she just she couldn't drive that far. Um, she found it very like difficult to navigate her way around. And um, so we never just really made trips up to Dublin. We'd go around, you know, Limerick, Galway, Cork, Sligo, you know, things that were close to us. Um, so I felt like a small fish in a big pond, essentially. <laughs> um, and I always kind of like, I remember in sixth year, I knew I wanted to go to DCU. I just had a strong inkling that that would be the place I would adjust to the best. And um, but funnily enough, when I did move to Dublin, I had no rule. I had no idea about where things were. So I ended up living in Clondalkin and traveling an hour and a half to DCU, which was absolute madness. (laughs) So I didn't really have that student life (laughs) in the first year. You lived Um, on a bus or two buses or whatever. uh, The 13 thankfully goes straight to DCU for an hour and a half. Um, so something a lot of people don't realize is during college, like, um, I was doing a lot of free stuff in journalism. I was also working part-time. Um, thankfully I got into the access scheme in DCU, which, you know, gives students like myself from lower income backgrounds, um, the opportunity to make money while they're in college. Mm -hmm. So that helped like a lot because it's very hard to navigate working and studying, um, so I found that DC was very helpful in terms of um, the access scheme, which gave students um, just an easier time. <laughs> um, but also, while I, my first kind of journalistic break was in Clare, thankfully, when I went home for that summer, I worked in the Clare People and they let me stay on. It was, you know, it was free. I did free stuff. But for me, that was the first real experience I could get because, you know, like yourself, you have to do a lot of free stuff before you can get paid work. And um, I think one thing I managed to utilize my time well while I was writing um, in but all three years, I was writing across all three years while I was in DCU and it, everything was free. Um, and I think that stands to me now because it's like, OK, I've done the grift, <laughs> the graft, not the grift. <laughs> <laughs> the grift comes later. <laughs> <laughs> I've done the graft. Um, and I think that's kind of like that later foundation for the stuff I did after I left college. 
Yeah. And did you sort of feel, uh, you mentioned the access problem there, did you feel any sense of stigma because of your background, because of the fact that you're coming from down the country, from, you know, other people in your class, I'm sure, had to sort of, you know, much better um, possibilities, if we put it that way, than you did. Did you feel any sense of stigma or was it a very sort of a democratic educational environment in DCU? Thankfully, everyone um, that I was friends with was also in the access program. So, like, even in my course, like, everyone um, in my course, so I had a group of maybe six friends, um, and they were all students that were also in the access program. So I don't really, I didn't really feel that stigma because I surrounded myself with people who I had met to the access program because thankfully they had, like, an induction week where you got to meet people in your course where I also came into that program, and, you know, you also got to meet people across other courses. Um, so that kind of, like, because we all kind of shared similarities in maybe finance or we all shared similarities in, you know, family backgrounds it kind of made things a lot easier and I didn't really feel that kind of um I suppose distinction between myself and other students um one thing I think that I did feel though was I felt like you know obviously students are going out on nights out and things like that and uh, or maybe they have more um links to people who are working within media I kind of felt like oh my god I don't have those things will that affect me as a student will that affect me in terms of opportunity will that affect me in terms of you know basically who I meet and who can help me access certain opportunities and mm. um, tell me about the the course itself right because I mean there's a huge amount of debate about how things I mean years ago a guy called Stephen Brown was a bureau chief for Reuters he said to me that journalism is not an art it's a trade right the, mm -hmm. it, like you're putting stories together and it's basically like being a plumber or a carpenter or anything else if you put all the elements together the right way you're going to have like a handicraft that's what you're basically making you know um did you find mm -hmm. the course was very theoretical was it very practical uh did you find that in your work with the Clare people that you could instantly sort of translate your academic learning into journalism or did you find that the two worlds were completely different um, so I think one thing about the course in DCU is it gives definitely gives you all the foundation you need to to put into the work you do. I think the true learning absolutely comes from what you do in practicality, like actually building the confidence to write your own things and building the confidence to create your own things. But I think definitely without the foundation I learned within um, the journals, of course, in DC, I don't think I would have been able to have gone on and worked up the confidence to actually put my own stuff out there, to pitch my own stuff to publications. Um, I found that, um, obviously, I found that a lot of the lecturers who came, who were actually working, um, had the biggest value to me personally. I mean, like Paul Flynn, who works in RTE, also taught like a television module in DCU. And I never, while I was in DCU, I never thought I would work in television. But I remember thinking, oh my god, this is so valuable. I didn't know that this is how you know reports are put together, or packaged together for television. Um, so I found that a lot of the people who are still in the industry, or even guest lecturers who are still in the industry, I found out they were really, really impactful in our learning because. There are just things where you have to see someone who is doing it at the moment. You know, they're up to date. They know what's going on. They know how the industry is at the moment. And um, even like guest lecturers who came in and told those stories about, you know, how long they had to work before they got the job that they were in. For, for us, although that was a little bit discouraging, it was also empowering at the same time. Um, so I found that, that that aspect of the course is definitely invaluable.
a couple of times a year I go over to Ireland and I frighten the ever loving daylights out of students by telling them some of the things that I've had to do and some of the things that yeah. I've done and it's you know it is but I always try to tell them the, the sort of the positive aspect as well you know how much fun mm-hmm. and how rewarding this job is when you finally get through all the now you still have to do ridiculous things I had a weekend recently where I can't remember I basically didn't sleep at all doing two different jobs and that was mad but it's still worth it in the end you know mm-hmm. um, absolutely Tell me about your first day in RTE, because when you left college, you were one of the, sort of the top students in the class, right? And you were recruited by the RTE sort of children's news programme, News Today. What was it like to go into Montrose, like this bunker of Irish broadcasting? You know, you basically went straight to the top of the charts, right? What was it like to go in there for the first time? Um, so basically, I am oblivious to certain things. <laughs> I'm completely <laughs> oblivious. Like, I literally just, like, it's, I kind of wander into things and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, I remember one of the first things um, I said um, when I got the job was, oh, but I, but I have a slightly weird accent. Like, do you think I can present on television? <laughs> that was one of the first things I said. Um, I remember when I went around and they were introducing me to everyone. Everyone was lovely. They were very welcoming. But um, I didn't realize how big and how how much things would change until basically I saw media outlets writing about me. And, you know, as someone who was writing about others and you see your name in headlines you're like wait what (laughs) you realize (laughs) oh actually it's not just you know just me doing a job it's actually a huge deal um so that was like intense and like i i know saying unexpected is a bit weird but super unexpected because i've kind of always seen myself as oh just a girl who enjoys journalism and wants to pursue it as a career i never saw myself as you know as anything more than that Mm. um so when i saw the articles and people being like you know rte employs their first afro-irish presenter i was like who's that (laughs) oh (laughs) okay a friend for me to meet okay um so it was just it was just it was huge and i think the impact of rte is like you know there's no way you can say it doesn't have an impact because me realizing for me it was just like another job but i then realized that oh actually this is much more bigger Mm -hmm. What what was it like the first time you're standing in the canteen, right? And, you mm-hmm. know, Ray Darcy is behind you and Ryan Turbury is in front of you and Darren Frell is over there. And, you know, all these people that you've sort of grown up, maybe you didn't grow up watching them on TV, but just certainly when you when you start to get into the business, you go to college, you start to realise who all these people are. You know, Marion Finucane is there and all of a sudden they're there. Did you find yourself sort of starstruck by any of these people or was this the typical sort of Zainab thing going, oh, that's lovely? <laughs> Honestly, it's the second, but I'm also the kind of person that doesn't get starstruck. I, I literally, like, I don't know, Lady Gaga could be right in front of me and I'd scream, but I'll be like, oh, my God, that's Lady Gaga. Cool. Like, for me, it's like at the end of the day, they're just people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I did start to realize oh, these are really familiar faces. Like, you know, when you see a face in a magazine, you're like, why does this person look familiar? oh, I bumped into them the other day. You start to realize things like that. And it's a bit of a weird feeling because it's like a disconnect. It's like, oh, like this is, these are people that I work with. Um, but um, no, it's like, it's, I suppose it's just chill. It's cool. <laughs> and did you find those people to be, you no, know, obviously we don't want to name any names because uh, like, I don't have libel insurance for this podcast, but there you go. Um, but did you find people to be helpful? Did you find it a very competitive environment? Did you find it cutthroat? How did you experience, especially in the early stages, were people willing to help Zainab to get on our way, so to speak? 
I'm like, everyone's been super helpful. Like, there's nothing. There's, they have no dramatic stories. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> nothing dramatic at all. No, everyone has been super lovely and super nice. And, like, I kind of keep to myself anyway in general. And so I've not, have any, I've not had anything bad happen or anything, like, dramatic or anything. I actually wish I had exciting stories. But it's literally just, like, going to work for, like, any journalism job. <laughs> Okay, now that just begs the question, right? We've mm -hmm. all had these situations where things have gone wrong. I once interviewed the guy who now manages Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Did a tremendous interview with him, gave me a great news line, and I discovered only afterwards that my mic was busted, so all I got was like this shh sound, so there was no speech at all, the whole thing, right? What was mm -hmm. the biggest thing that ever went wrong for you in your time as a news presenter at RTE? Honestly, the biggest thing that ever worked, <laughs> it's a bit silly. Um, I had about maybe two minutes to air and I spilled something on myself and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't change in like two minutes. This is, what, what do I do? So I did the most me thing ever and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go underneath the blow dryers in the bathroom and you know, I'm blow drying my top and I put it on real quick and I run back into studio. I watched back the clip and I had my shirt like inside out and front to front to back. <laughs> and yeah, I, like, I wouldn't and get away very, with that. It's very obvious because I look crazy and my hair is like on one side <laughs> because, I, you know, I didn't get to check myself. I was like, OK, looks fine. It's dry. I was so worried about, you know, the, the wet mark on my shirt that I didn't even look at like how I put the shirt on. <laughs> And um, sometimes when I want to laugh, I like go back to look for that clip and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but uh, that's probably the craziest like, you know, thing that I've, that's happened in terms of mistakes wise on air. Well, if that's the worst thing that ever happens to you, you'll be happy enough. Um, yeah. The, the audience you were speaking to at that time, um, it was obviously a young audience. This is a, a news program for children. What kind of challenges did that present for you? Because, you know, you've done a three year degree in DCU. You're obviously a very intelligent person, but now you're mm -hmm. finding yourself having to present what can sometimes be very tough subjects as well for a junior audience. Uh, how, how tough was that to do? Um, I wouldn't say it was tough. I think something people don't realize with children is like, you just have to kind of speak to them like the way you'd speak to an adult, but just simpler languages. Um, very often, I think I find that I actually didn't understand a lot of the news stories that was out there until I had to explain it to a younger audience because you have to use language just it's just you know free of jargon honest direct straight to the point I found that it was actually probably the best kind of program to work on because it's just especially I know with my friends because they watch the show occasionally just simply to you know make a laugh at me and um, they'd often come back and say actually you know I did not understand that story about Brexit but now that I've watched your show and it explained all the words related to Brexit I feel like I know where we're at now <laughs> so I just found that I like I had to do a story there where I had to explain what a counselor was a local counselor and you know you'd assume that we all know what a local counselor does and what you know yep. there are different jurisdictions that they cover all that kind of stuff and then I sat down that day and I was like wait a minute, oh, what am I supposed to be voting on? <laughs> <laughs> so I just found that it actually gave me a clear understanding of different things to do with our society and politics. Um, so it wasn't difficult, but it was kind of like you had to first be able to get it for yourself before you're able to explain it to children. And I think that's, I think that for me is like, I'm, it, going on in the future, I think that's like how I'll view writing stories 
would a 10 year old understand this mm. if not start at the top again <laughs> well it's a tremendous lesson to learn because i write a lot for international media and people mm -hmm. who will be reading it in english english is not necessarily their first language right so you mm -hmm. learn very quickly to strip out all the fancy bullshit you'd normally put if you're writing on the front yeah. page of the irish times and to do things that way instead and it's made me sort of 10 times the writer just by by doing exactly what you say you know it's like mm -hmm. if you can't explain this to a 10 year old then you have mm -hmm. no business writing about it you know absolutely and i think it could be like uh, when we see the sort of the level of obfuscation that in the reporting of certain stories you can pick any story that's going to turn up on any news bulletin this evening mm -hmm. and i think all of them would benefit from being stripped back in that way and yeah you decided after a couple of years there at news today that you wanted to move on and you wanted to do different things now you know if you don't want to go into the details of it uh, that's fine but what what led you to that decision Zainab? leave but it was you know a time for them to hire a new presenter um so i'm still with rte at the moment but i'm also working on personal projects um so at the moment i'm trying to build a platform for women of color living in ireland um through an event which i'm hoping that can be a reoccurring event but our first one will be in september um so with this project that i'm currently working on it's about highlighting um, women in media, women in business, women in arts, um, who are doing like things that sometimes don't get highlighted or um, even just media attention. And I'm hoping that through the event and bringing out these stories and hearing from people who are doing amazing thing things, like I have a woman who um, her like part-time job is literally just empowering young women in schools and showing them the ways they can get into STEM, they can get into, you know, tech companies, highlighting the different ways women um, from either um, lower-income backgrounds or immigrant backgrounds can still make sure that they are, can still make sure that they are valuable to companies. Because I think very often, because my partner works in diversity and inclusions, very often um, we hear all these things about diversity hires and tokenism and companies and things like that. What I'm trying to say is basically we call it beyond representation because we want to show that women of color are able to empower themselves and represent themselves as opposed to having the narratives stripped away from us. We're trying to bring the narratives for ourselves. So that's why the project was started by, with myself and this other girl called Ola who works as, um, she's a girl girl who works in Irish media as well. She works with Radio Malifa and she's done a bunch of stuff trying to highlight the stories of women in colour or even just people of minority backgrounds in Ireland. Um, so I think the reason we started it was just, it's important for us to show that we are capable of representing ourselves and showing that our narratives do matter in the Irish landscape. And it's not about trying to just ha like, include people because it makes the company looks good it's about trying to include people because you know you authentically care about raising diverse voices because i personally believe that uh, when you have voices from all types of culture it just kind of it just ensures that you have a much more uh, you have much more of a product or a brand that reflects the society we live in now mm -hmm. uh, which is why beyond representation has been created for that <laughs> it's a fascinating uh, thing have you ever sat in one of those meetings right now this doesn't have to be rte or beyond representation or anything else like that but have you ever sat in a meeting with well-meaning people and you just realize hang on a second these people have no idea of what my reality is or reality is for people like me have you ever found yourself in that situation oh 
absolutely. And this was even, this goes back to even like being in college and working for, you know, a multitude of places. Um, I've kind of sat in play. Well, this was, I had to write an article once for a company, which I won't mention their name. And they wanted me to write an article in a way that just kind of felt like it wasn't authentic. They, it kind of was almost like they were trying to bait me to write something that they knew would get negative um, right. feedback. And I'm very used to having my articles back then. I would get articles that would put put on racist websites, and you know people would pick it apart for a multitude of reasons, mainly because they were racist. But you know, <laughs> mostly that. Um, I've had that happen before, and I kind of got the inkling that um, the company I was working with at the time just kind of wanted to increase their attractions mm-hmm. and kind of throw me to the lions, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I have had situations like that happen, and I've talked to other women who've had situations like that happen, whether it be through, you know, an article or whether it be through the work they do, um, or even like it's like uh, this is obviously I'm not going to mention the name, um, but I remember this lady told me that she once had her picture used in the company pamphlet, and she kind of felt as though it was just so the company could show, look, we have a black person here, as opposed to this is a reflection of how our company actually looks. So little things like that, um, it's understandable that, you know, people do want to reflect what Ireland looks like now, but it has to be authentic as opposed to um, just to show how diverse your office is because you have a one to 50 ratio of, you know, the person who's black to the person who's, you know, Irish. You know what I mean? Yep. No, I remember being at um, a workshop in the, the wake of the refugee crisis in 2015 when so many people came to Europe and uh, there was a company developing an app to teach them to learn Swedish and they brought me in to talk about storytelling and they were sitting around brainstorming they're going okay well you know what do people need to learn you know they're going okay you know oh you know they need to learn the conversation like how to have a conversation at a dinner party I was going what the fuck is the matter with you people who is going to invite you know somebody from Syria to a fucking dinner party where they're going to have to speak yeah. Swedish they need to know how to talk to a pharmacist they need to know how to talk to a pediatrician if their child needs help you know and that was just one of those now like I'm a middle aged man the whole world is built for people like me right but that was one of those situations where I clearly felt okay this must be you know like one thousand of one percent of what it feels like for Zainab in these situations you're bound to come across these things an awful lot more uh, often than I am do you feel it's changing though do you feel that now uh, having done news today um, and being involved in Beyond Representation, do you feel that uh, more and more people are there sort of on merit, that people are seeing beyond the fact that somebody uh, is, you know, comes from an Afro-Irish background or a Balkan-Irish background and that they just go, okay, that girl or that guy, they're a great journalist, they're a great storyteller? I think, um, so one thing I just want to make clear is Ireland has always had people from all types of backgrounds yep. living here. Um, like sometimes I go through the RT archives and I'm like, oh my God, you know, I didn't know Nigerians have been in Ireland for this long or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but I think right now what's happening is, um, and I personally don't like the term new Irish, but what I see that's happening right now is a lot of people my age, especially, and um, um, younger people, um, they're making their voices heard. And we look at it, what I like to make an example of, if you look at the Irish music landscape right now, um, R&B is like a growing genre at the moment mm-hmm. and when you look at R&B you see like people my age from so many different backgrounds and like it's they're not waiting for someone to give them the opportunity to highlight their talents they're create, creating it for themselves you know one person's a photographer the other person's a videographer the other person's a singer and they're coming together and they're creating art forms that's being appreciated by you know music critics and 
people internationally. We look at Spotify. Spotify has a big impact in um, empowering these young people who are just going out themselves and creating the content that they want to see reflect their societies. So I look at music because I think music is the most obvious one at the moment. But then if you look at the roles of Tralee, the, the recent one that just went past, and that girl, that one Christine Maher, I think her name is, um, you see young people that are coming up through the ranks and they're just picking themselves by the bootstraps and they're just showing that, you know, we're here, we're talented. And the, the narrative, the subtle narrative that um, some people have that, you know, being a child of an immigrant or being a child of someone who's from a minority background, um, you're not going to amass too much in life. And I know people don't generally have this narrative, but it is there sometimes. Um, they're growing up, they've grown up all their lives, like myself, in Ireland, and they're realizing, no, I'm not going to let that narrative stop me from becoming what I want, going as far as I want. Um, I look at my sister who just graduated her leave insert um, today. Congratulations. And she's going on. <laughs> yeah, not graduated, I'm, you know, got her yeah, yeah she got her results, results. yeah um and she's going on to study entrepreneurship and i'm like you know in 20 years time you don't know what business she's going to create and people her age just you know they're pursuing their dreams and um that for me that's really really exciting to see because it just means that ireland is becoming a change in society and it's a positive change i think there's this fear um from certain fractions of the society that um, having an increase in minorities or an increase in these children growing up here means that Ireland's not going to look the way it once did. But the truth is Ireland has always been this way. It's just you're only really seeing it now. Mm. It's amazing that you mentioned that because I was talking to a friend of mine at News Talk earlier on this evening um, mm -hmm. about a, a, there was an Afro-Irish kid when I was growing up. Now I'm 48 years of age, but there was a guy who he played. He ended up playing soccer for Arsenal. He played soccer. Kwame Ampadu was his name. I think his father was Nigerian as well. And I was just asking this friend of mine, he was talking to a sort of a mutual friend. I was going, oh, you know, do you know how Kwame is doing? Because I haven't seen him, obviously, since we left school. He went off to play soccer. But I remember him being in, in Dublin at that time, you know, as if, you know, because like you say, this is nothing new. I mean, there were students mm -hmm. coming to Trinity College from Nigeria, from Kenya, from Zimbabwe and these places, you know, mm -hmm. pretty much all the time since the post-war period, these things were there. And um, beyond representation, I'm guessing that it's the kind of thing that you would like to have a limited shelf life, right? You don't want to be doing this in 40 years time. You want to get oh. beyond representation, right? So could I just yeah. ask you, what kind of other things do you want to do? Where do you want to take your journalism alongside Beyond Redemption or in the aftermath of that? Um, so like at the moment right now, I'm working with Nationwide and, you know, doing features with them. But I think long term, what I see myself is I've always wanted to create um, documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, in the future, I see myself writing books, which is something I still want to do because I have a lot of fictional characters swimming about in my head. <laughs> and I feel like they need to be brought to life at some point. So I do want to write books, particularly for young people, um, because I grew up reading books like I had no friends. It was just books. <laughs> books are great so friends. I kind of think, sorry? Books are great friends. They're great friends, yeah. So, yeah, in the future, I see myself becoming an author, um, producing documentaries. I've also always wanted to own my own production house. Um, I know that's, like, something that's, like, super, 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 super far into the future. Um, and w the, with the way the internet is going, we'll see. <laughs> um, so the production house would be based about, around online content. Um, but we'll see how the internet goes anyway. <laughs> 
that's a, a pretty amb- ambitious slate that you got going for yourself there. But to get slightly even more ambitious for my final question, I'm going to ask you, right, I'm now appointing you Minister for Communications in the next government. What is the first thing that you would change in Irish media? Oh, geez, that's a very hard question, isn't it? That's right, only ask the hard questions. <laughs> that's very hard, geez. Um, oh, I can't, I don't know. I've never thought about this. But there has to be something that you've got, oh, God, this is crap. I wish I could change this. You know, would it be gender quotas? Would it be expanding it to sort of six FM stations instead of two? Off the top of your head, what is the one thing you'd most like to see in Irish media? Oh, my um oof. I think I would in terms of communications, it can be a lot of things. It can be media, arts, you know, all the works. I think I probably would just invest more in independent creators. Yeah. Cause I think there's a lot of brilliant ideas that um sometimes don't end up being made. And I'd look at like people my age and my friends who maybe not in journalism, but, you know, in other courses that are more creative courses, and they're constantly looking for um, money, basically, to create their, bring their ideas to life. So maybe just more um, funding for independent creators. Just, I definitely vote for you if you're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Zainab Oladele, the best of luck with your uh, upcoming projects, and I hope to talk to you again you in about much. a year or two down the line, and we'll see how far you've gotten with all these great things. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs>